Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Professional Psychology, offering a nationally accredited doctoral program in psychology. To find out more, go to misp.edu. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Remember, if you're stepping away from your radio because you're headed into work or for any other reason, you don't have to miss out on the conversation here on Detroit Today. You can go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to us, and you can take us with you and listen when you are ready. Obvious place to start the show Today is with President Donald Trump setting off yet another firestorm with vulgar comments, really vulgar comments, about immigration from majority black countries during negotiations with lawmakers over an immigration deal. We're going to spend much of the hour today talking about what he said, what it means, and try to put it in some important context. But first, I really want to say a few things about where I think all of this comes from. For me, Donald Trump's obsession with immigration has always seemed suspect. Suspect because his rhetorical focus on illegal immigration, things like border security and undocumented immigrants and dreamers, never really made a lot of sense. Not in a country where illegal immigration is now at historic lows. Not in a country where the border is more secure than it has been and where the children of undocumented immigrants are, in many cases, making incredible contributions. To our nation. So, what's at play when Trump frames an entire campaign around the idea of building a wall between the United States and its nearest southern neighbor, our third largest trading partner? I've long said it's about immigration itself and the kinds of immigrants who come to America looking for a better life. It's about race and it's about ethnicity. The idea that there's something different or lesser about the many brown-hued people who make up the swell of immigrants to this country. Well, yesterday, the president went a long way to prove me absolutely right with his comments about immigrants from countries like Haiti, El Salvador, and those countries in Africa. I'm going to say now what the president allegedly said. It's really offensive language that you might not want to hear. He allegedly said, quote, Why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here, according to multiple people in the room? This is the word he used in describing those countries during negotiations with lawmakers over this emerging deal on immigration. The president now says he didn't use that specific language. Now, more importantly, this is not what he was saying during the campaign, at least not publicly. And it's not really what he said he wants on the table during the immigration debate. But here we are, January 12th, 2018, talking now about who belongs and who doesn't. Who deserves to be an American and who doesn't. I say this was the aim all along. This was what all the coded nodding toward white supremacists and their supporters was about during the campaign and what it has been about during the first year of this presidency. This, for example, is what his comments about white supremacists in Charlottesville were about last year. It's an attempt 
to reinstate the kinds of ethnic restrictions on immigration that this country unfortunately embraced from its founding all the way up through the civil rights movement in the 1960s. This is the quote-unquote great America that Donald Trump eulogizes and wants to resurrect. This is where he wants to take us. So the question for all of us really is pretty simple. Are you okay with that? If you supported Donald Trump for president, were you aware that this, a reframing of legal immigration as opposed to a crackdown on illegal immigration, was what was on his mind? And do you support that? If you voted for the president because of your support of his other ideas for tax reform, because he was going to attack the Affordable Care Act, all of these things that people said attracted him to you, are you all right? with this racist return to ethnopurity as a standard for immigration, something that we struggled for a really long time just to get off the books in this country and that we still struggle to take out of our culture. The president is showing us really nakedly what he thinks about people who come to this country from places where most of the people are black or brown. And we've got to ask ourselves, is that the America we're okay with? We're going to start the conversation today with Paul Kramer. He's an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University, whose research focuses on transnational, imperial, and global histories, American social thought, and the politics of inequality. But we also, of course, want to hear from you, the listeners. What do you think of what the president said yesterday? What do you think of the idea of trying to reframe legal immigration around the idea of where people come from as opposed to what they might do when they're here or the fact that they're fleeing conditions that maybe we even helped create in their home countries. Think about the things that we think about when people come to this country and say they want to be Americans. Should we be adding the quality of life or the desirability of the country they're coming from or the color of their skin to those criteria. I think that's what the president is getting at here. I think there was no question that that was what he was getting at during the entire campaign. What he said yesterday, I thought, was the clearest expression of it we have seen yet. You want to join the conversation? Tell us what you think he was saying. Tell us what you think we ought to say back how we ought to react to what he said. 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter, and hashtag Detroit Today will work you into the conversation. Paul Kramer, Associate Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. Let's start with you um, reacting to what President Trump said and and putting it in the context of immigration policy in this country and the history of immigration policy in this country. That's something that you have spent a lot of time uh, studying. Yeah, well, uh, as you were saying, I think it's important for us to retain a capacity for being shocked at a moment like this, but not surprised. Um, as many of your callers have said, this is part of the course in a lot of respects, both in terms of the vulgarity um, and also in terms of Donald Trump revealing to us his vision of what the United States is and should be about, and that it's a country uh, for white people um, or non-Muslims um, 
and um, that's clearly something he feels deeply. Um, he's he's given us that information again and again. So, um, and often in history, uh, people's vision of what the country should be about is reflected in their vision of of who should be allowed to come in and participate in the country. And and uh, in U.S. history, this um, idea that it's a country for certain kinds of people and not for others goes way back. Uh, um, really, in the founding laws that establish who can become a citizen, for example, mm-hmm. it uh, says explicitly in the 1790 law that you have to be free and white yes. uh, to naturalize. So it's right there at the founding in terms of this notion that if you're coming in from the outside, um, the country really sees you as a potential citizen and member if you're white to start with. And um, and so, you know, those traditions of making uh, racialized distinctions between peoples and their desirability for the United States, uh, you know, kind of goes way back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk about that, that Naturalization Act of 1790. That is, as you point out, the beginning of immigration law in this country. It's also uh, important to note the year. Uh, that's that's the year of the first Congress. I mean, it's one of the first things that gets done in this country as a matter of lawmaking is establishing that you have to be free and white to immigrate here. Those laws change somewhat over over time. But in the 20th century, we've seen laws passed that uh, that denote differences, ethnic differences between people and set up different rules. Uh, based on those differences in terms of whether they can uh, immigrate to this country? Yeah, well, I think um, the 20th century really sees the kind of high tide of racialized ethnic distinction between different groups. And we see that um, in the 1924 Immigration Act, for example, uh, which is referred to as the National Origins Quota System, Mm -hmm. which makes explicit decisions uh, based on where you're from. So literally different countries and regions of the world get different uh, quotas based on their perceived racial desirability. And this is a moment that's the high tide of Jim Crow. It's the high tide of eugenics Mm -hmm. uh, across the Atlantic world. And the United States is no exception. So it's making these distinctions um, um, uh, based on these notions of nationality and of the desirability of which countries you're from in ways that really, you know, sort of evokes the sentiment in Donald Trump's statement. Um, one of the things that's interesting to think about in that law is that the basis for who's going to get what quota uh, is relying on older censuses. So, uh, so kind of policymakers go back from the 20s and they say, let's, let's look at the late 19th century for this big wave of European immigration mm-hmm. that so many Americans at that time were finding scary. Um, and you know, let's try to recalibrate uh, the country uh, to kind of bring us back to the late 19th century. So it's quite literally a kind of let's make America great again at the level of you know, trying to turn the clock back uh, in terms of the demographics of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so talk about the effects of those policies on American society. Uh, the, the idea that uh, this country today sort of exists as an outgrowth of those policies, I think is really important to, 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 to think about because uh, what the president is saying and what, uh, I, and what I think he is doing or trying to do uh, really is to reverse 
some of what we've seen, especially since the 1960s when, uh, by law at least, uh, we, we're no longer making these these ethnic distinctions in, in, uh, in immigration law. Um, uh, the, the, that reaction that he's having is, is to the browning of America that happens sort of after these laws fall, fall by the wayside. Right. Well, I think um, the big moment for uh, transformation in, in U.S. immigration law, or one of them in the 20th century, is 1965 with the Hart-Seller Act, which, as you said, does away with the national origins quota system. And that's a law that's um, coming from a bunch of different places. I mean, it's clearly a response to the civil rights movement and the notion that if you're going to uh, desegregate lunch counters and you know, voting booths, uh, it makes no sense to have racist immigration controls. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an attempt to kind of line up the U.S. immigration system with its domestic politics in a civil rights era. Um, there's a foreign policy dimension to this, which is important, which is that in the 60s, the U.S. is waging the Cold War, and it's fighting a war of hearts and minds to try to win over uh, African peoples, Caribbean peoples, Asian peoples that are just emerging from racist colonialism. And policymakers are thinking about these countries have a choice about whether they align with the capitalist West or or communism. And we need to send the right messages. We need to communicate to them that they're welcome, that we want to align with them, uh, that we want to work with them to fight communism. And one way we can do that is by uh, getting rid of racism in the U.S. Immigration Code. Um, that's one of the things I find very striking in terms of Donald Trump's approach to immigration in general is that it's entirely about playing to his base. Um, yes. And he has understood that uh, that race is a divisive issue. It's one that can polarize and mobilize the people he wants to support him and that do support him. Um, and often you've had policymakers that are thinking domestically and thinking about how to get people out to the voting booths with immigration policy, but they also have a whole set of other concerns in mind, foreign policy concerns, economic concerns, um, and Donald Trump doesn't seem to have that. He has a a kind of uh, impulse about using immigration as a polarizing, uh, energizing issue for his base, but that has enormous sort of ramifications that are not a part of what what he's thinking. uh, in terms of what you were mentioning about post-1965, so after the the national origin system falls, um, it opens up immigration to uh, family reunification, for example, mm-hmm. where that becomes a major priority to kind of take families that have been separated to allow family members to sponsor relatives. And so suddenly groups that have been excluded from migration and citizenship, uh, especially from you know Asia, um, from Latin America, from the Caribbean, uh, are able to uh, bring family members over. Um, refugee policy becomes much more important during that period. Right. Um, uh, and uh, it's shaped by Cold War priorities, where you know if you're escaping a communist country, you're going to get a, an asylum hearing, and you may even get you know, a flight from the U.S. government in the case of Cuba. Um, if you're you know, fleeing a country the U.S. is sponsoring, you know, and there are many, you know, right-wing dictatorships the U.S. is sponsoring during the Cold War, and yeah. a lot of people are fleeing those countries. Haiti is is a good example here. Uh, those groups, for reasons of race and reasons of foreign policy, are not going to be given here. So, uh, but nonetheless, this development leads to a very different demographic and, and culture for the country. 
Uh, it's a major factor in the kind of, you know, making of a diverse country that begins to look more and more like the rest of the world. And and for many people at the time and since, that has been enormously troubling. People that held on to the notion of the U.S. as a country by and for white people have found that a very disturbing development. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We are talking about President Donald Trump's comments yesterday about immigration from countries in Africa, from countries like Haiti, from El Salvador, uh, used a very vulgar term about those countries and suggested maybe the United States shouldn't be taking a lot of folks in from those places. That is a throwback to the kind of uh, ethnic tests that were used in American immigration for centuries. Uh, is this a sign that that's what Donald Trump really wants? He has said since he began his campaign that he was about curbing illegal immigration into the country and dealing with those undocumented immigrants who are here. This says he is about something quite different. It says that what's on his mind is something quite different. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. So that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Corey on Twitter says, perhaps what bothers me most is that most media outlets refuse to come out and say that he's a blatant racist. Why? Why skirt the issue? People think of racism as a simple hatred of black and brown people, but it's not that simple. It's about not wanting to give up one's privilege as a white person. It's insidious in that way. He may not have issues with individuals, but, but systemically, it's pervasive. Uh, Melissa from Shelby uh, called it. Couldn't uh, We couldn't get her through on the phones. Uh, she says, I voted for Trump. This isn't about race. It's about protection of the country. Betty on Facebook says, my reaction is frustration and outrage. The same feelings I've had over and over again in the last year. Just when I think I can't be outraged more, our president lowers the bar. Again, Michael on Facebook says, immigrating to the United States is not a human right. My guest is Paul Kramer. He's an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University. His research specializes in transnational, imperial, and global histories, American social thought, and the politics of inequality. We're talking about the comments from President Donald Trump yesterday about immigration, about countries where people immigrate from that he says are awful places. He used a vulgarity that I won't repeat again on the air. Um, but he says maybe we ought to be thinking about not taking so many people from those places. What do you think about that? What do you think about the idea of an ethnic test for immigration? That's something that we've had in this country for a very long time, up through the 1960s. In fact, it went away. Is Donald Trump saying, let's bring something like that back? Let's return to the idea of ethnopurism as an imperative in our immigration policy. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, uh, Paul, one of the things that, uh, that I know your research has been about is this idea of why we allow immigrants into the country, uh, and that when things like this happen, when comments like this come out, 
it, it forces us to play into uh, sort of a false premise for immigration to begin with. Um, talk a little about that. You know, one of the things that strikes me, and we can approach what Donald Trump said in terms of his individual attitudes, and by this point, that's none of that's a surprise. I mean, uh, but I think there's a, a broader point about how we talk about immigration in general in this country. And there, I think, what strikes me again and again is that the the kind of anti-immigrant forces have, have really shaped the conversation in ways that um, we're always asking ourselves with a, a great deal of suspicion uh, whether immigrants can assimilate, whether uh, they're going to help make America richer and more powerful, um, and whether they're going to, you know, drain the U.S. welfare system. And, and those are um, you know, questions animated by hostility, uh, by fear, by suspicion. They can easily, you know, sort of get racialized and as people sort of create us-them distinctions. And, and you can get a lot of political have a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what that does in a way is it puts the defenders of people moving around in on the defensive where they end up saying things like, you know, uh, yeah, these are, these are, uh, you know, people that are going to work hard and not make demands and, and be quiet and they're going to become just like us. And, um, and in a way, being on the defensive like that, I think, plays into the hands of people that would exploit and punish and, and oppress yeah. uh, newcomers to the country. And and so I guess, you know, in terms of what I'd like to see, I'd like to have us think in some of the broader terms that you began with by sort of saying, why are people moving around? Why Why is it that people can't thrive and survive in place? Why do they have to uproot and leave their homes? And I think, you know, we need to ask ourselves some tough questions about the role of the global north um, in a wealthy, powerful countries like the United States in, you know, promoting or prompting yeah. uh, some of the forces that are uprooting people. If we think about climate change and the ways that that's displacing people, uh, if we think about wars, if we think about trade policies that sometimes make it impossible for people to make a livelihood where they are, and they have to go somewhere to survive, for their families to survive. So right. I think we need to kind of think harder about what you know, scholars call push factors, right? things that are preventing people from living where they are, and think about our, our own involvement and our own complicity in some of that. And you know, there may be responsibilities that people in wealthy, powerful countries have towards those that are arriving by virtue of uh, their role in, in uprooting people in the first place. We're going to take a break uh, and come back and, and switch gears a little here. Paul Kramer, Associate Professor of History at Vanderbilt University, thank you very much for being here on Detroit today. My pleasure. Thank you. Yep. listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking this hour about Donald Trump's comments yesterday about countries like Haiti, countries in Africa, countries like El Salvador, where he used a pretty vulgar term to describe them in immigration debate uh, with lawmakers, suggested that maybe we not accept so many people from those countries as immigrants 
to the United States. Uh, we are having a little trouble today on our phones. There were a lot of folks who wanted to participate in that conversation. Uh, we can't get that together. So we're going to go ahead with some other guests and tell you that if you've got something to say, you want to participate in this conversation, go to Facebook, go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there. Or if you go to Twitter and hashtag us at Detroit Today, we'll try to work you into the conversation. We're going to have to to fly that way for the rest of the show here because we are not able to sort out the phone issue, but uh, I promise we will get that going again for you when we're back next week. Joining me now to continue this conversation and talk about some other things in the week's news are Caitlin Buss, who is an editorial page writer at the Detroit News. Also with us again is Nolan Finley, who is the editorial page editor at the Detroit News. Caitlin and Nolan. Good Welcome to be to here. Detroit today. It's always good to see you guys. Too. Um, let's start with uh, Trump's comments and uh, the immigration debate over uh, uh, over DACA. Uh, Nolan, you and I had a conversation yesterday yeah. uh, on the show that we uh, that we contribute to on Detroit Public Television, my week, about this. And you you said something that that I thought was was uh, yesterday before all this happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty insightful about uh, the, the possibility. It was an accident. Uh, that's right. Every once in a while, right? You hit on something that, that makes some sense. Uh, you you talked about the possibility of a deal mm-hmm. of both sides sort of coming away from extremes to figure out a way to deal not just with these dreamers, these kids who, through no fault of their own, are here uh, as as undocumented uh, uh, citizens, uh, but but also maybe to deal with the the larger well, question that, of undocumented immigrants, uh, there was some movement on this yesterday, and the president yeah. seems to have either just thrown that completely off track or at least distracted from it in a really terrible way. With well, his. so here we go again with this administration: something hopeful, something positive, and then some, then a derailing with a really stupid. Uh, action, stupid statement. I thought on Monday in that open door meeting, that public meeting, which was extraordinary with that, to have cameras in the room and reporters in the room during a negotiating session. And when the president said, you send me a bill that includes a route to legalization right. for the 11 and million people it. who are undocumented, and I'll sign it. That's the first time we've seen anybody from his camp making that sort of statement. He said, I'll take the heat. And, you know, I felt that that was an opening that if the Democrats would take the heat from the open borders crowd on their side and give him some of the enforcement measures that he was looking for, including some version of a wall, which he will not back off of. And I thought the two sides were moving toward that. And then you get now this report that he's, that he made this, comment in reference to the deal that he didn't want anybody from these blank hole countries, meaning Africa, some other countries. Now, he's out this morning saying, I didn't use that language. And to me, there were two senators in that room when he said it, Durbin and Lindsey Graham, a Democrat and Republican. They have an obligation this morning to step out. I mean, they, you don't need to quote anonymous sources here. Right. They were in the room. They're elected. They're accountable to us. Presumably, this is where it came from, yeah. right? Well, uh, I don't one know. Of them, one of them leaked if, this somewhere. If so, they don't need to do it anonymously. They're accountable to the voters. Did he say it? Right. And if he said it, he needs to get about making amends for it. If he didn't say it, we need to know that because it's very damaging to our relationships in the world and our relationships with this country. This is 
This is not something to play with. Durbin and Graham were in the room. What did they, they know? What, say? They know what happened. We don't need anonymous sources here. Right. right. Uh, Caitlin, this is this is sort of part and parcel with the 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 chaotic nature of Trump and, uh, and and this administration. I have always thought, though, that there's that there's sort of a method to the madness here. That that he does these things when he is sort of in a position where he may be too close to doing something he really doesn't want to do uh, or where he's being forced to talk about something that he's not ready to talk about. He sort of, you know, throws a stick uh, mm-hmm. and and everybody goes and runs after it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you make of the timing of this, which, uh, again, is right as we were on the precipice of mm-hmm. talking about a big immigration deal, something we've been waiting several decades for. Yeah, I mean, with him, it's always one step forward and two or three, four steps back, which is unfortunate because you kind of get this momentum uh, forward and then and then we go backwards again. Um, I, I think he probably was feeling some pressure from his base, which you know, his diehard supporters, unfortunately, will probably support him through this. I don't think there's any reason to think they wouldn't, assuming what he said is true. Um, And and to me, that's the more interesting thing is he was probably getting some pushback on making those moderate deals and, uh, you know, got scared, made an offhand comment. But like you said, there's probably some method to the madness. And to me, the, the supporter reaction is probably more interesting than what we know to be true about Trump, which is that he kind of feels this way about some of those countries. Yeah. Um, and, and just the the blindness of a lot of his supporters to what immigrants have gone through historically in this country. And, you know, white white people have. I mean, I'm, I'm a descendant of, of immigrants. Most people and, here are descendants of immigrants. And, and yeah. even white immigrants went through bigotry and, and a lot of challenges to to make it in this country. So to ignore that history that his, you know, his supporters ignoring that is is what troubles me a lot. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about what he said, too, is if you think about the countries he's talking about, Haiti, uh, countries in Africa, if you look at the numbers on the immigrants from those countries and what they're doing here, I mean, these are actually some of the more accomplished uh, folks who they mm-hmm. let into the country because immigration is already so strict from uh, from countries like that if you don't have a relative here or another reason mm-hmm. to come i mean these are people who who meet standards that a lot of native americans uh, or, or or people who were born here wouldn't be able to meet mm-hmm. uh, if 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 there were a test for us and and so to pick those countries out again it gets to this idea that this is about this is about race and uh, this is about uh, this 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 sort of purification of America that really bothers me about him. But more to the point, I think it bothers me that the people who support him aren't calling him out on it. Or if they do, they do it in a very discreet way and don't push back in that that sort of bad uh, way. I'm not sure that's true, Steve. Mia Love, who was a uh, uh, avid Trump supporter and won election on his base, was out very powerfully this morning. I think once it's confirmed— Tim Scott said some things, too, that were one, important. Once it's confirmed that he said it, I think you can't fault people for reacting to anonymous sources until they hear— uh, you know, for I don't think there's much question that? that he said. It. I mean, well, uh, I don't. I, and again, I don't know. As I said, there were people in that room who have an obligation to tell us. But I thought the African Union made a very powerful statement this mm-hmm. morning about this when he said, when they said, when, said that there was a time when America came to Africa and forced people 
to immigrate to come to this mm-hmm. country and it, you know when right. they came and captured people it's it's pretty nervy now to say we don't want people from from these countries and you know he mentioned well we want people from Norway people aren't lining up to get out of Norway they have opportunities in Norway the sure. best and brightest the most hopeful the aspirational they have opportunities they in have Norway chances it's there the places now. where they don't have opportunities where we've always benefited in this country from providing them with the chance to come and realize their potential and their dreams. Yeah. And they're the most grateful to be here oftentimes. Yes. yes. Well, the, most so per, you know, you know, the, the most committed. I mean, it's, it's always been those folks who are coming from places where they can't realize their dreams yeah. who have contributed who come to, the most. Who come and, and work really hard to try to get to a better space. Deborah on Facebook says, worth recalling, that the opening up of U.S. immigration policy, the 1965 Hart-Seller Act, was co-sponsored by Michigan Senator Philip Hart. This act really truly opened up the U.S. to immigrants from the entire world. We were talking with uh, Paul Kramer, an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University, in the last segment about that. Uh, Deborah, thank you for that comment. Stephanie on Facebook says, As much as I'm outraged and appalled by the comments of the president, it's no surprise that his supporters don't care. This is the problem. They will continue to support him no matter what he says or does and agree with him. I kind of wish at this point the media would just stop talking about him, stop giving him energy because he seems to just become more outrageous the more attention he gets. Uh, Julia on Twitter says, it's terrifying to think that the long arc of history is getting bent further from justice by this administration and I fear for the physical and emotional safety of my people of color Friends, uh, again, uh, today especially, uh, we need you to, to talk with us on Facebook and on Twitter uh, about uh, Donald Trump's comments on uh, immigration. Uh, our phones are, are not working uh, that well this morning. I guess that's you got a blank hole got to pay the system here. <laughs> that's right, or we got to pay the bill or something. Uh, uh, I, I want to switch subjects just a little bit uh, here. I've got two members of the editorial page at the uh, Detroit News in the in the studio. We're not the, sure how that happened. <laughs> that's right. Has that never happened on this show? Who's, who's working? Uh, <laughs> um, I want to talk a little about the income tax issue at the state capitol. Uh, the, the, the governor says he wants a fix. Everyone says they want a fix, yeah, uh, a fix. For, for what the federal reform will do to state taxes. Uh, but somehow I, I suspect... Uh, as with most issues, Caitlin, uh, this will be harder than it should because people will bring to the com- to the conversation things that probably don't really don't really belong there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's always the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this should be a, a simple fix now that the problem has been raised. Um, and I, I wouldn't mind if there was a, a small tax cut that was somehow added on to that, but it shouldn't be much more than that. And if you can't get the tax cut and you want to just get the fix through, that, that should be the solution. Yeah. I mean, why do we need a tax cut right now? I mean, this is one of the things that I think really separates people on the right and the left. The idea that taxes should always be cut or always be going down uh, is something that conservatives always talk about. I always say that that the way you ought to think about government is – here are the services we need. Here's how much they cost. That's what ought to determine what the tax well, rate is. We ought to be always examining every tax dollar mm-hmm. we spend and every tax dollar we raise to make sure they're doing the things we want to do. I don't think it hurts ever to talk about tax cuts, but I don't think in Michigan, which is has a fairly uh, low state tax rate at 
at just above 4%. It's a flat tax, which gives us a benefit. I don't hear a lot of people squawking about Michigan's income tax. Uh, We cut our property taxes and changed that system a few years ago when that was a a hot issue. I don't hear a lot of complaints uh, about taxes in this state. And I think the federal tax cut has probably uh, done a lot to you know, further limit concerns about state taxes. Uh, the governor has been opposed to returning the state tax to income tax to 4%. For good reasons. Um, you know, he's, he's obviously worried about the, um, you know, the, the impact on the budget. I would, if I were him and if I were the legislature, trade this for driver responsibility fees, which the governor, for some reason, doesn't want to uh, lose that revenue. I think yeah. there's a lot of room for That's getting some good steps, uh, good things in place here out of this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Um, our phones are not uh, working that well this morning, so we can't talk to you that way but uh, we do always love having the listeners be a key part of uh, this program Uh, i also quickly before we uh, run out of time want to get both of you to talk a little about oprah as a democratic candidate for president Uh, we spent a lot of time yesterday talking about it on the show uh nolan i think uh, it's obvious that that would be where your vote went if yeah, uh, you know, if yeah. she was a candidate, yeah. right? Yeah, I'd get my box of Kleenexes <laughs> out and go to every rally she went to, she held here. You know, I think this is a, a, a sad commentary both on where uh, our, our political process at all levels, both the electorate and the politicians. I think it's when we turn to celebrities like Donald Trump and Oprah Winfrey and say, wow, they're really cool, we really like them, blah, blah, blah and think of them as political leaders, it's an expression of our frustration with the political class who are who are leading us, that the people who have not gotten the things done we want to get done, the people who are so cautious uh, in, in, in their uh, leadership uh, don't want to do anything that might cost them votes or popularity. Uh, people have been let down by their political leaders, and so they're gravitating towards celebrities. Oprah's a populist in her own form, uh, not that much different than, than than Donald Trump. I mean, they're both they both were successful business people. Good for them. How yeah. about selecting some successful <laughs> politicians? So, but I mean, I think the question leaders. is the the question is whether Trump. Trump's election as president, which is unprecedented in the sense of somebody who'd never had any political or military experience before, changes the equation so much that you have to now consider someone like Oprah uh, seriously because he sort of burst that barrier. And Mm -hmm. I think it could be difficult uh, to run a conventional politician against him. Uh, and beat him, Caitlin. I, I I think you're right. I think he's changed this, you know, f- for the future. Um, and to that end, Oprah is probably one of the most popular uh, people, you know, on the other side of the political aisle. Although we don't know much we about don't know her political feelings. How far feelings. she is over on that, on right. that side of the aisle? Either. She's the only one popular enough to maybe rival, you know, the likes of Trump or, or what he had going on during his campaign. But like Nolan said, I mean, that just continues to lower our bar to a populist level and base the presidency and other elected positions on popular sentiments of the day. I mean, her speech was largely about Me Too, which, 
you know, has had its ramifications, but it's not going to go on forever. It's not going to be our focus forever. And, and we should return to the really important governing problems, which is what politicians are supposed to do. They're not supposed to be cultural warriors. I mean, we don't want to continue that. So one of the things that, that also uh, puzzles me about this is, you know, if you're not going to, to, to go that route, a uh, celebrity to run against uh, Donald Trump, who do you pick? Uh, if you're the Democrats, mm-hmm. if you're the Republicans, uh, do you have somebody who can beat that that sort of celebrity draw? Oh, I think the Republicans, there will be Republican challengers to Trump this time. Who can I, beat him? Uh, I think. I, well, if we continue down this path, I think uh, maybe uh, uh, that's not going to be such do a himself hard fine. I think he beats himself. He may not even run again. I don't know how much fun this is for him living in a guy who is, you know, pro- likes to do what he wants to do and say what he wants to think, say. Living in this sort of uh, tight lidded environment. I don't think it suits his personality well. What's the difference, two terms or one term? He's been president. I would expect he doesn't. He's 71. He doesn't run. I don't but, expect he doesn't run. And I think there's any number of Republicans who could beat him. Uh, ben Sass. Maybe. Uh, hmm. Maybe Jeff Flake. Yeah, uh, I don't know. But it, know. it is ahead, hard Jim. to think of, you know, to imagine the world before Trump and to go back yeah. to just kind of a normal, boring president. <laughs> What's everyone going to do? I mean, it's hard to think <laughs> of us taking back that anyway. adrenaline. What will we write and talk um, about? So. Right? <laughs> All right. Uh, Nolan Finley, editorial page editor at the Detroit News. Caitlin Buss, uh, editorial page writer at the Detroit News. Thank you both for being here on Detroit today. Thank you. To do it for me this week, I'll be back on Monday when it's MLK Day here on Detroit Today. We will play his famous I Have a Dream speech. We also have a really great interview with Danielle McGuire, a historian from Wayne State University, about Reese Taylor and the history of women, black women in particular, and sexual power. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>